0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, your faithful correspondent, and I am here to tell you that I am a pirate expert now, or at least more of a pirate expert than I was two weeks ago. And if you've been paying close attention to the theme of this podcast, you know it's called Criminal Broads and not Criminal Blokes. The fact that I just said the word pirate means that, yes, we are here today to talk about that most swashbuckling of Shiro's, the female pirate. But before we get started, a um, couple things, a couple housekeeping things. Listen, if you like the podcast, I would love if you would leave a review on iTunes. It really helps the podcast reach other similarly curious and creepy eyes. Um, and then if you want to occasionally see photos, I always post photos of these women on Instagram at criminal Broads. If you have any questions, uh, critiques, suggestions, uh, please email me criminalbroadz at gmail.com. I do take requests and in fact, we'll be fulfilling one such request in a couple episodes from now. Also, next episode is episode 10 and I have something big planned. So stay tuned for that. But anyway, let's get back to the subject. Let's get back to the story. Pour yourselves a glass of rum. Yes, it's cliche. No, we don't really care. Pour yourselves a glass of rum and sit back. Oh, crack your window. Feel some of that salt spray coming in from outside if you live on a houseboat. And sit back and enjoy the story of a female pirate so common, so common-born that we don't know her real name, but so powerful that she put Blackbeard to shame. of the caribbean movie there's a dramatic scene in which a group of powerful and rather greasy pirates meet to hash out some ancient pirate code the group called the brethren court is a governing body of wicked pirate lords who meet to confer on pirate law and pirate plots the scene is dramatic all these mighty men staring daggers at each other around a filthy table but as the camera pans around the room one pirate stands out white painted face red lips, jewels in her hair. Yeah, there's a woman seated at the table, too. And she's based on a real person, a real pirate. Meet Madame Chung, Mistress Ching, as the movie calls her. A woman with an almost unbelievable degree of power right at her fingertips, who controlled more ships than Blackbeard, commanded more men than Calico Jack, and who terrified more government officials than Henry Morgan, a woman so empathetic that she tried to ban rape in her pirate ranks, and yet so terrifying that villagers hid when they heard she was coming. China's golden age of piracy stretched from 1520 to 1810, during which the South China Sea witnessed three great pirate cycles. The last of those cycles, which swelled in the mid-1790s and came crashing down in 1810, was unique in that it was both terrifyingly massive and led by a pirate who was a little bit different than the rest. Before this last great wave of piracy came along, the pirates who splashed around the southern coast of China were kind of petty and unimportant. Imperial Chinese boats could deal with them easily, swatting them away like so many mosquitoes. But then China's neighbor, Vietnam, found itself deep in a nasty civil war and the king of Vietnam realized that all these ramshackled Chinese pirates would make great navy backup. So he began hiring them to bolster his ranks and the sudden infusion of cash into the pirates' lives made the entire scene boom. Once the civil war ended, though, this now enormous pirate scene was suddenly up for grabs. Would someone consolidate it? Or would it splinter into internal pirate warfare? These were the questions people were asking, and soon enough, about 10 pirate leaders were fighting to control the entire enterprise. There was suddenly a lot of power on the line. Now, what were these pirates like, you ask? Well, many of them were Chinese, but their ranks were also swelled by pirates from Japan and Malaysia, and even from the continents of Africa and Europe. Many of them came from poor families, The average pirate was a single guy in his 20s without steady employment, usually with some sort of seafaring work in his past as a sailor or fisherman, for example. And when these discontented young men couldn't find legal work, taking a gig on a pirate ship was an easy next step. Now, the job wasn't necessarily easy, and neither was life on the ship. When there wasn't enough food to go around, these pirates sometimes ate boiled caterpillars or even cooked up the rats that ran wild in their ship's hold. But it was a community, and a steady source of work. And what a community it was. It was massive. It's really hard to overstate how massive this scene was. To give you a little perspective, let's compare it to the world of Western piracy, which featured famous guys like Blackbeard and Calico Jack. At its biggest, the Western pirate population reached 5,500. Impressive, right? 5,500 pirates. That's a lot of pirates. But the pirates who sailed around the South China Sea, their population, at its largest, was 70,000. Now, to run something this large and dangerous and diverse and rebellious, it would take a woman, of course. By 1790, China was smack dab in the middle of the Qing Dynasty, the last of the imperial dynasties of China before the country became the Republic of China in 1912. Now, this dynasty was huge and powerful and wealthy, but like most places around the globe in 1790, women didn't have very many rights. They were seen as merchandise or property They had very little social mobility, they couldn't own land, and a very striking symbol of all this was that many women had their feet bound into tiny, delicate shapes, making them both physically and symbolically helpless. And so, the women who managed to gain power in this society had to be creative. The most effective way, to snag a piece of the pie for yourself, as a woman, was to marry someone powerful and then work within his social and political systems to gain some of that power for yourself. You see this in empresses, for example, or in the official mistresses of emperors. But marrying someone powerful was, of course, easier said than done, especially if you were a girl with no money or social connections. Into this world, a strong-willed girl was born. We don't know her real name, but we know she was born a commoner with nothing particularly special or privileged about her background that would help launch her into an exceptional life. Still, she had several things going for her. Her bravery, her ambition, and her keen organizational mind. By 1801, this girl was working on a floating brothel, known as a flower boat, off the coast of southern China, which provided sex workers to nearby merchants and sailors. This would not have been an easy gig by any twist of the imagination. The women who worked on these boats were practically enslaved to the men who procured them. But that same year, everything changed for this girl because she met a powerful man. This man wasn't your Average powerful man, though. He was a pirate. His name was Jung Yi, and he was one of those pirate kings that were fighting for power after the war in Vietnam ended. He fell in love with this girl. They got married, and the two of them began a very lucrative and productive relationship. With the help of his new bride, Zheng Yi soon became the number one pirate in the region, the pirate boss. His wife... Let's call her Madame Zheng now, as some historians do, as she's known only to history as Zheng Yi Sao or Zheng's wife. Anyway, Madame Zheng was right by her husband's side as he rose to power. While he was the unifying figurehead, the patriarch of the pirate world, and the military commander, she was the one who organized everything and made sure the pirates acted as a group with shared goals. This was a skill she would wield expertly for the rest of her life, She was great at convincing people that they'd be better working together than striking out on their own. The Jung's managed to unify all these rogue pirate gangs into an official, and quite frankly, a terrifying confederation of organized ships. And by 1804, they were controlling 70,000 pirates, 800 large junks, and 1,000 smaller boats And they were soon murdering powerful government officials and flipping the entire power system on its head as they roamed and marauded along the coast of southern China. Their pirates were organized into six fear-inducing squadrons, the Red Flag Fleet, Black Flag Fleet, White Flag Fleet, Green Flag Fleet, Blue Flag Fleet, and the Yellow Flag Fleet. And their lieutenants had equally colorful nicknames like Bird and Stone or Scourge of the Eastern Sea or, I like this one, jewel of the whole crew. And then, of course, who could forget frog's meal. The most powerful squadron was the Red Flag Fleet, commandeered by Zheng Yi himself. In order to make sure that their power stayed consolidated, he also appointed family members to lead some of these other squadrons, and he would use his female family members to even help with this consolidation, marrying them off to other formidable pirate allies, etc. For the Zhengs, the theme was, and would always be, keep it in the family. Sometimes this made them a little weird. Their favorite family member was actually not related to them at all. His name was Zhong Bao, and he had been snatched from his fisherman father when he was 15. But Zhong Bao was now super loyal to the Jungs and took to pirate life like a fish to water. Zheng Yi took him under his wing, and then slept with him as a form of pirate initiation and then gave him his own ship to commandeer and then to further strengthen their bond and make their relationship unbreakable, he adopted the boy. So that was their relationship. Apparently it wasn't as totally weird as it sounds to us to make your young lover your adopted son. Uh, It was more of a sort of um, official designation um, of a relationship of closeness. Anyway, Jung Yi's meteoric rise to power was stopped abruptly in 1807 when he died unexpectedly at sea. Some sources say he was blown overboard during a storm, others say he was hit by a cannonball during battle. He was only 42. Now, without her powerful husband, what was Madame Cheng to do? Abandon her life of freedom on the open water? Become a chaste quiet widow and get a little house on land? return to the flower boats and try to scrape together an income there, surrender all that delicious power that she was just beginning to taste? (laughs) No. Dam Jung was no fool. She knew that she couldn't just waltz onto the deck of each ship and declare that she was in charge now, so everyone needed to start listening to her. She knew she needed to be a bit more intentional, a bit more clever about this little transfer of power she was hoping to make happen. What she decided to do was to lean in heavily to her personal relationships, so that she could become a legitimate leader who was well-connected and, more importantly, unquestioned. She couldn't have her in-laws grumbling about her, for example. So she made sure to get on the same page as her husband's powerful surviving relatives, and also made herself indispensable to the leaders of the various fleets, convincing this wild bunch of pirates that collaboration with her was in everyone's best interest. As she tightened the nuts and bolts of her relationships, so to speak, she also desperately needed to find a new leader for the Red Flag Fleet, that most powerful of squadrons that her husband had led. She needed someone who knew how to handle power, who could control the daily operations of the fleet, and who could hand down orders to the leaders of the other squadrons. But most importantly, she needed someone super loyal, someone who would never question her leadership, her capability, her backbone of steel. There was only one person who could have possibly filled this role, Zhong Bao, her husband's lover slash adopted son. He was perfect, not just because he was related to her by adoption, but because he was a true outsider, too. Since he'd been captured, he hadn't grown up a pirate, obviously, and so he didn't have any lingering loyalties to other pirates in the region. He was all hers. Like her husband before her, Madame Zheng decided that the quickest way to consolidate their relationship would be to make it sexual, so she took him as a lover and then married him. For the record, Zhang Bao was an awesome dude. He was charismatic, dignified, and wise, though he did have a weakness for brightly colored clothes, and his favorite thing to wear was a purple silk robe. He was also not terribly bloodthirsty for a pirate. For example, he didn't like to randomly kill captives, which earned him respect from the pirates beneath him. For an ambitious pirate queen like Madame Cheng, he was an ideal second husband. Now, I'm not saying Madame Jung was a control freak, but she did make a very intimidating and, at points, oddly progressive list of rules for the entire organization. Anyone who was found giving their own orders or disobeying her orders would be beheaded. Anyone who didn't turn over their booty to the leader would be whipped or beheaded if it was a lot of booty that they didn't turn over. All of their plunder was divided along a strict 80-20 split, 80% to the general fund, and 20% to the individual pirate who did the plundering. Most notably, she had special rules concerning rape, which was standard practice for many pirates. When pirates invaded a town, it was very horrifyingly common to rape the female captives. Madame Chung put an end to this practice, saying that rape was punishable by death, and that even consensual sex with a captive would result in execution for both the pirate and the woman. Pirates were allowed to choose captives as their wives, but Madame Chung demanded that if they did pick a wife, they had to be faithful to her, though captives who later published recollections of her rule said that pirates seemed to have several wives at once. One Westerner, who was captured by the group, saw that violators of Madame Chung's law were punished so efficiently that it seemed, quote, almost incredible. He noted that the severity of these laws led to a pirate force that would attack boldly defend themselves rapidly, and who was not afraid of anything, even when they were outnumbered. Sometimes, Madame Zheng got manipulative. Since these pirates were religious and very superstitious and wouldn't set sail without praying to their gods first, she and Zheng Bao would secretly conspire with the priests to manipulate their men. They'd tell the priests what sort of messages from the gods they were hoping to hear, and then Zhong Bao would announce that he was going to ask the gods if he should attack so-and-so or destroy such-and-such a town, and would you believe it? The gods always confirmed his plans. Madame Zhong was a PR genius, too. For example, she didn't like the word plunder and ordered everyone to refer to it as trans-shipped goods. And in general, she seemed to get along with people on land. She always told her pirates to pay for things like wine and rice. And one historian notes that she did not approve of wantonly murdering people. Thus, through methods that were strict, cunning, and sometimes oddly feminist, Madame Zheng made sure that her power remained untouchable. It's easy to be all rah-rah girl power when we look back at figures like Madame Chung, a woman who gained unimaginable power in a distinctly male world. When people occasionally write about her, you'll often see references to the fact that she banned rape, which sounds so fantastic, so wonderful. But we have to remember that it wasn't that she forbade all violence against women, period. She just forbade violence against women that hadn't been approved by her. And remember how I said that the townspeople loved her? The same historical source that said that later says that, in 1809, Madame Zheng began sailing up China's many rivers, plundering villages, murdering townspeople, and generally creating havoc. Such was the terror she inspired, says the source, that peasants fled and hid themselves on news of her approach. Like our pirate queen here, pirates in general were complicated beings. In many ways, Chinese pirates were the polar opposite of the Confucian values that were being emphasized on their mainland. If the ideals on land were things like honesty, frugality, self-restraint, and hard work, the pirate code was a bit more, shall we say, morally gray? Forged out of hardship, prejudice, and poverty, writes Professor Robert Anthony, who studies piracy in early modern China. Pirates created a culture of survival based on violence, crime, and vice, characterized by excessive profanity, intoxication, gambling, brawling, and sexual promiscuity. As we can tell from Madame Cheng's books, rape was so common and such a tool of terror that it had to be controlled and regulated by the pirates themselves. One captive noted that each ship had women who were there to service the pirates whenever they wanted, Though the captive also noted that the pirates didn't typically go to these women as they were too busy sleeping with each other. And sometimes surely this was consensual, but the rape of young captive boys was also a common practice on these ships. My point is it's important that we don't forget the real horror that pirates spread like a virus in the midst of all their swashbuckling. But at the same time, piracy did represent a certain degree of freedom to people who wouldn't have otherwise had much freedom. Piracy allowed a whole lot of marginalized people to participate in an economy that was otherwise shut off to them. For example, poor fishermen who secretly traded with pirates would have been able to make more money and advance more than they could have otherwise, while their sons were able to join the ships themselves and begin collecting plunder—oh, sorry, not plunder, transshipped goods— It wasn't perfect, but it was advancement. It was a means of advancement. And while the world of pirates brutalized many, many women, it also afforded others a shocking degree of freedom, too. While Western female pirates had to dress up as men in order to experience the salt spray and the thrill of danger, Chinese female pirates could be openly female on ships. Just... Imagine them clambering around these deadly pirate junks, their feet unbound and their hands clutching weapons. It's hard not to thrill to the idea, to some degree. They would fight right next to their husbands, and some were even in charge of whole ships themselves. One of these pirate wives famously held to the helm of a ship with one hand and wielded a cutlass in the other, slashing at attackers as they tried to charge her. And even today, even across the world in America, you can find this story of her bravery in history books. Under the shrewd leadership of Madame Chung, The pirates grew so massive and organized that they became, somewhat hilariously, a kind of boring bureaucracy. (laughs) Madame Chung installed offices on land, offices, where fishermen and merchants would have to buy certificates of safety, basically paying a fee uh, so that the pirates wouldn't attack them. Yes, these ferocious pirates were now dealing in paperwork, Plus, they had allies on land who would give them food and supplies and plenty of corrupt government officials in their pockets. Things were going very well for them. But it wasn't all certificates and receipts and file folders. Madame Zheng proved herself to be an amazing military strategist, too, and would defeat the Chinese navy again and again with her boats arranged like a floating fortress, or she would deceive them into attacking her by hiding the bulk of her army behind some cove so that the navy only saw a few of her ships and felt confident about attacking And this led to horrible battles with corpses floating in the water around the boats and so on. In fact, the Navy grew so terrified of Madame Zheng that they would refuse to sail, period. They they wouldn't go out on the water, claiming that they were just, uh, waiting for better weather? (laughs) If they got really desperate, they would even sink their own boats instead of facing the fearsome squadrons of the Pirate Queen. By 1809, this queen was so powerful that the government decided they had to finally do something. For years, the Chinese government had been turning down offers of help from the British and the Portuguese, despised foreigners who the Chinese considered to be total barbarians. But Madame Zheng's pirate army was so huge that the Chinese finally had to accept outside help, and the British and Portuguese were more than willing to give it since even they had been damaged by the pirates' reign of terror. Their beloved tin and opium trades had been almost totally destroyed by Madame Zheng's activity. Funnily enough, Madame Zheng and Zheng Bao were also ready for their pirating days to come to an end. The red and black fleets had been growing increasingly antagonistic towards each other, and these internal tensions put their entire organization at risk. And, hey, maybe the couple found themselves longing for land, longing to exchange their floating bed for a nice little mansion somewhere. Maybe they wanted to raise a couple of kids on solid grounds, far away from boiled caterpillars and the rough work of beheading disobedient pirates. So, in 1810, they told the government that they were willing to negotiate. And this was just fine to the government because the Navy had no interest in trying to battle them into surrender. They knew they'd lose. In fact, officials were willing to let the whole lot of pirates surrender and keep their wealth without really prosecuting any of them for their crimes. Still, the negotiations kept stalling until finally Madame Jung pulled a dramatic move. Accompanied by 17 pirate wives and children, she went alone and unarmed to the government officials and began bargaining herself. Her big ask was that she wanted Zhang Bao to retain a little squadron of pirate ships for himself. Officials weren't happy about this, but Madame Cheng simply indicated that she was more than happy to return to her pirate life if they didn't help her. And after a while, the government gave in. The couple retired, She snagged her husband a lucrative job in the government itself as a military leader, which meant he was now fighting pirates, and the two of them had an adorable baby boy. Now, we don't know much about Madame Zheng's post-pirating days. Zheng Bao died in 1822 when their boy was 11, and it seems that she didn't totally walk the straight and narrow for the rest of her life. At age 65, she tried to sue an official for embezzlement, but it became pretty clear that she was using forged documents to prove her case. One historian says she ended her days leading a smuggling organization. Another says she opened a gambling house. She died in 1844 at the age of 69. So what do we make of this female pirate queen? One thing's for sure, if you were a male pirate in turn of the 19th century China, you definitely wanted to be pals with Madame Zheng. It was hugely beneficial to know her. The pirates who knew her were able to transition from outlaws to officials and both of her husbands benefited enormously from her military prowess, her organizational aptitude, her gift at negotiating, the way she maintained her relationships, and the fact that she was able to keep these thousands and thousands of marauding, violent, discontented pirates loyal to her and at least somewhat under control. Marriage may have been the first step in her ascent to power, but she continued up the ladder of power on her own two feet. The historian Diane Murray, who studied her more than anyone, notes that it was particularly impressive that she was able to get all this support and loyalty and admiration from men because she wasn't acting like an ideal woman. Other Chinese women from the same time period who also gained power, say by being an emperor's official mistress, were usually hated by the people beneath them, but not Madame Chung. Maybe it was because she was from a common background, just like her pirates. She was a woman of the people, that's for sure. Whatever it was, it was impressive that they obeyed her, even though she wasn't acting in any way sort of perfect, wifely, subdued, quiet. And in fact, she even displayed some very unusual behaviors like, well, marrying her adopted son. Madame Zheng isn't all that well-known these days, at least not in the West, though she is a frequent, if small, part of pop culture. Aside from her appearance in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie as Mistress Ching, she pops up in a Jorge Luis Borges story and in various other pirate-themed plays and comics and books from time to time. If we tend to romanticize her a bit and forget the true price of her crimes, well, she's not the first rogue we've romanticized, is she? Imagine her, at the peak of her power, She's consolidated all the fleets in the South China Sea to answer to her alone, and she's got 70,000 pirates at her beck and call, a floating nation state. She stands at the helm of her favorite ship. There's gold in the hull and salt in the air and a cutlass at her waist. She thinks back to her days spent working in the floating brothel, when freedom seemed like a concept eternally forbidden to her. The winds in her face and she laughs. What can I do? What can I say? After I've taken the blame? You say you're true. you go your way. But I'll always feel just the same. Maybe I'm wrong. Right.